the House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. Once again, you've found Capital Ideas, and that's good. Today's episode features an interview with a new lawmaker, someone you're going to hear a lot from in the coming years. Charlotte Manna is a state representative from Washington's 29th Legislative District, a large and diverse piece of the state that she'll describe in just a few minutes. First this, Capital Ideas is the podcast in which members of the majority Washington State House Democratic Caucus stop by our makeshift studio in the Capitol and talk about ideas. Invariably, these are good ideas, ideas about ways to increase the health, safety, prosperity, peace of mind, and quality of life for every single person in every part of the Evergreen State. If you're looking for hot talk, you'd better move on, because what we strive for here is civil, informative, and essentially positive conversation. Now, with that out of the way, let's get to today's interview. I sat down with Charlotte on Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023, and here's what we talked about. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Charlotte Mena from the 29th Legislative District. Tell us about the 29th District. That's a pretty diverse area. It's a really diverse area. It's a majority people of color district, and geographically it includes South Tacoma, the South End, East Tacoma, a little bit of Lakewood, and Parkland and Spanaway. That's a pretty big area. Yeah. You're a new legislator. You've been here for now about six weeks as a sworn-in lawmaker. But you've got a whole lot more experience in Olympia than most first-year lawmakers, as well as experience in the other Washington. So I think those are some interesting things that people might like to hear about. Rather than start there, however, I just want to ask you, who are you and how did you get here? Well, that's a great question. I think it'll take us on that journey. (laughs) That's fine. But as you probably know, I grew up in Pasco, Washington, in in eastern Washington, on that side of the state, because my parents came to Washington State doing migrant farm work for Mexico. So they picked strawberries in California, they picked cherries in Washington State, and they met cutting meat at the IBP plant just outside the Tri-Cities. So that's where my brothers and I grew up. And I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to go to college. And I was the first person in my family to go to college out at Washington State University. And I grew up with this sense of, you know, public service. Really, the service to community was one of the values that my parents instilled in us very early. Um, And so for me, it was a no-brainer when I had the opportunity to do an internship out in Washington, D.C. And when I got there, I started to see folks making decisions about working families without any working families in the room and make decisions about immigration without any immigrants in the room. And so I started to become more and more aware of how policy is made that affects our everyday lives and how critically important it is to have folks with that lived experience at the table. And that really became my mission. I got to study communications, which was really pretty amazing for me because when I started school, I didn't speak any English. So just get, getting to the place where I could communicate with my peers and I could communicate with my teachers 
was a really big hurdle that took a lot of hard work and a lot of patience and a lot of great resources. And so, you know, as a communications major, I got to work in the House of Representatives for a couple of members that had majority Latino districts. And part of my work was to do this outreach to constituencies in both English and Spanish to make sure that they could sign up for the new health care law under the and, Affordable Health Care Act. And this is the U.S. House of Representatives. The U.S. House of Representatives, that's right. Um, and doing that work was so wonderful. You know, it was it was an opportunity to reach back into my community and to bring folks into the process and get them the information they needed to advocate for themselves and be civically involved. But I still had this pull on my heart to do this back home, to come and do it with, with my community. And that's what brought me back to Washington State, but this time to the west side. And you've been a Senate staffer just across on the other side of the sundial. And you've also worked for Governor Inslee. You've got some pretty good experience in how this place works. And now you've kind of finished the trifecta, I suppose, by being in the House of Representatives. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So so after coming home, I got to join the, the Washington State Senate and do some of the communications work there before transitioning into policy work with Governor Inslee. And that was a really uh, special opportunity for me because I got to take all this federal experience and be an advocate for the state, for our state agencies, and to do this good work. Um, I was there from mostly mostly just for the 2018 year, uh, which was, I think, a really challenging year given that the state administration was often at odds with the federal administration, especially on issues of immigration and issues of environment, issues that were really close to my heart. Uh, so I decided to come home and do some of that work here instead, where I felt like I was rooted and um, really found my place in Tacoma and started working at the Department of Ecology. And I think there's been a series of inspirational laws that have passed in that time in the last four or five years, including the HEAL Act, uh, which really centers environmental justice in a lot of the government work that we do so it was those laws that really inspired me to step up and get my hands dirty myself and come in and try to further that work where I think it's needed. I'm going to move now to the environment because one of your jobs down here is vice chair of the Environment and Energy Committee. Tell us about how your work in that committee is going. And I know that you have influenced the committee in certain ways by sponsoring some bills that tie in to the portfolio of the Environment and Energy Committee. Yeah, so I absolutely love serving on that committee. I love being the vice chair to Chair Dolio, someone who has a lot of experience and for decades has been really fighting and working really hard to achieve some of the progress that we have in the state today. I've sponsored um, five pieces of legislation that are now in rules that have gone through the Environment Committee, and some of them are really, really close to my heart. So I'll, I'll tell you about the toxics bill, and then I'll tell you about the utility shutoff bill, because I think those are going to have the biggest impact in my district. So one of my bills would ban toxic chemicals in cosmetics. And cosmetics are not just makeup. They're shampoo, conditioner, deodorant, lotions, things that everybody uses, things that we use on our children as well. Sunscreen, I think, is important to flag as something that would be included in that. And so we have a report from the Department of Ecology and the Department of Health here in Washington State that show that we do have some of these toxics in our cosmetics. And for example, that might include formaldehyde, which we know is a cancer-causing chemical. It would include lead, which we know can have really damaging neurological effects, especially when young people use them. And so we have all this data that shows that these are harmful. And now we have data that shows that these definitively are in our products. 
And we also have data to show that there are safe alternatives on the market. And so what this bill would do is ban nine toxic chemicals, including some of those I mentioned, as well as PFAS forever chemicals, from being uh, put into those products and, and sold and distributed in Washington state. I suspect you're getting a little bit of pushback on this bill because it certainly would have an impact on business, mm-hmm. at least until they retooled and, and began manufacturing products with the safer alternatives. Yeah, so we've heard some concerns and um, questions about differentiating, say, what is formaldehyde as opposed to a chemical that releases formaldehyde and really just getting into the science and technicality. But I think the bottom line is this. We know that these these toxics are harmful for people and kids. We know that not everyone is at the grocery store reading the label, but rather is making the assumption that because something is being marketed that it is safe to use. And that's just not the case. And I don't think we should be fooling folks this way. You know, people shouldn't have to be a scientist to shop for their lotion, but that's that's the reality right now. And so I think it's important that we hold strong, that we make reasonable changes and accommodations for implementation where we can, but that we really preserve the heart of the bill, which is ensuring that we get safe products on the market. You know, you're carrying the flag now on a mission that's begun long ago. Yeah. It seems like almost every session here in Washington for the last decade, at least, some chemical has been banned because it turned out to be carcinogenic or it had neurological effects uh, on children and could lead to to uh, behavioral problems as well as as developmental problems, and so it's it's this, it's that, it's something in fireproof pajamas for children. This does fit in perfectly with the way the House Democratic Caucus has been working for the last several years. Yeah, I agree, and I think the Safer Products Act was monumental, and that gives authority to the Department of Ecology in perpetuity to sort of study these things as they're evolving. Make sure that when we ban something, we're not creating unintended consequences or what we like to call regrettable substitutes where we ban something and then get replaced with something worse that will fulfill its purpose. So we have great laws in the books, but we have to keep going. You've got a bill that has to do with something that I think lots and lots of people have commented on in their lives over the years, but not really done much about, which is the disparity in prices for many products that are aimed at consumption by women and consumption by men. And also, I, I'm not sure if this involves services or not. So I have a bill on gender pricing discrimination that would um, prohibit the, the sale or manufacture or distribution of products that have a different price based solely on who they're marketed toward. Uh, and this has a, you know, it has a lot of specifics in it so that we understand that there's differences in the cost of manufacturing various things. But what we're talking about is that is the products that are largely the same, they cost the same to make, maybe there's one or two ingredients that are different because of the scent or or something like that. Um, But really, folks are being charged more based solely on their gender. And this compounds, you know, the gender wage gap, which we know exists for all women, but in particular for black women, Latina women, Native women who are who are making the least, um, and then being charged more for the same products that, you know, folks may argue are luxury products, but are really basic essentials that we need, toiletry items, things that we need to get by every single day. Something that has been extremely prominent here, at least with the House Democrats and also, I think, over on the Senate side, is equity. This is a question that that now has gone from maybe being on no one's lips to being considered with every piece of legislation that, that comes out of this place. 
the Washington Voting Rights Act is is geared, I think, to increase equity at the ballot box and therefore equity in representation. So I seem to think that you care a little bit about the Washington Voting Rights Act. Absolutely. Tell us about that relationship. Yeah, I would love to. So I, this year, am so proud to be sponsor of the Washington Voting Rights Act 2.0. That's what we call it affectionately. It's a trailer to the Washington Voting Rights Act. When I was a staffer in the other chamber, I got to be part of the team that worked on this bill when Senator Rebecca Saldana carried it forward. And I thought this bill was one of the single most important things we could do for access to the ballot. So you may remember that there were lawsuits in the city of Yakima and then subsequently in the city of Pasco where Latino voters felt that their votes were being diluted, that the candidates they were voting for were not succeeding because they were being put in a pool with everybody else rather than being able to vote by district and actually elect leaders from their own communities and have the representation that they deserve. This was really important and really personal for me growing up in in East Pasco where we didn't have candidates come to our doors, ask for our vote, or ask us what our needs were. And what we saw after that litigation happened in Yakima and it happened in Pasco uh, was switching to district-based elections actually did result in more equitable representation. It actually did result in the first three Latinas being elected in the city of Yakima. So the Washington Voting Voting Rights Act provides a critical tool for these local jurisdictions, these political subdivisions, to be able to restructure on their own if they want to, if they see a problem. The only recourse they had before was costly litigation, a really difficult process. So now that that's on the books, we've seen it work in some places. We saw it work in the Wenatchee School District that had similar results like they did in Yakima. So what my bill does is lower the barrier to access the Washington Voting Rights Act. Now that it's been on the books for a few years, we're starting to see where some improvements can be made. What this bill would do is allow for cost recovery. So if you're part of a group that's vote is being diluted and you want to make sure that that is or is not the case, you can bring a notice, that costs money. It's going to cost money for researchers and legal fees. And what we're saying is we know that these communities are under-resourced, so we should enable them to get cost recovery if and when that local jurisdiction does make changes. Um, So in other words, when folks recognize that there is an issue and take action to solve it, we want to be able to do some modest cost recovery capped at $50,000 for those groups. Um, A couple other things that it does that I think are really important and going to help lower the barrier to access it are um, being able to build coalitions that can prove that their votes are being diluted together And why that's important is we don't want to divide the Latino community, the Native community, and the Black community in these areas. We want people to be able to come together if they are voting in a common way and say our votes are being diluted and we are a voting bloc and we are a multiracial coalition or however you choose to build that coalition. I think, and finally, um, it provides standing, just like we have under the federal VRA, for organizations so that... You don't have to find someone to be the person who puts their name on that lawsuit, who becomes um, sort of center and and maybe the target of backlash. So it's another layer of protection for a community who are really seeking to have their votes matter. Is this bill going to pass this year? Absolutely. I will do everything I can to make sure it does. Good luck. Thank you. Let's stick with the question of equity for a few minutes here and talking about socioeconomic levels and the kind of inequity that exists based on how much a person makes. Mm -hmm. 
There is a problem I know that you have been working on, which is the fact that during certain times of peak utility use, there have been shutoffs of people's electricity. Yes. Sometimes this is an inconvenience. Sometimes this is a, a genuine threat to health. Mm-hmm. And what is your legislation that is attempting to address this situation? Yeah. So I have a bill that would create a utility shutoff moratorium for non-payment during extreme heat. And like you mentioned, um, this is an equity issue. And we've seen really erratic weather. You know, we've seen climate exacerbate extreme weather events. And what we saw in 2021 here was the heat dome that claimed 157 lives. And I do think it's noteworthy that over 65% of those people, or I think near 70%, were, were older Americans. This is a problem. And when folks aren't able to pay their utilities, there is no other option. And so th- this bill really would ensure that whether you have the ability to pay or not, everybody is safe during times of extreme heat. There's also something in there that I think is a fairly new idea in the state of Washington, which is a reconnection provision. So if we are under heat advisory or heat wave or, or something like that, you're able to call your utility and have them reconnect your services for that duration. If they've been cut off previously. If they've been cut off previously for non-payment. So we do have a winter moratorium here that spans a time period uh, where no one's utilities can be shut off for non-payment. This creates parity for the summer months, um, but it does it based on temperature so that if something wild happens, like we saw in the heat dome that happened in May, we have coverage for folks that are more vulnerable. And how is this bill doing now? Did it uh, make it through the necessary cutoffs and is it still alive? Yeah, this bill is doing really well. It received bipartisan support in the Environment and Energy Committee. It's now in the Rules Committee, which is really the last stop before it can get a floor vote. So the folks in the Rules Committee will meet. They'll decide which bills to bring up for the calendar, and we're hoping that this one will be up soon. And bringing up for the calendar means basically putting it out there so that it's it's a potential bill to be voted upon by the full House. Mm-hmm. I've kept you for a while. I know you've got some other appointments to take care of today, but I want to touch a little bit on your other two committees. You're also on the Transportation Committee, which is a vital issue for this entire state and your district. Uh, Your district, maybe in particular, and the State Government and Tribal Relations Committee. Is there anything going on in those committees that you would like to highlight here before I turn you loose? Well, I think all, all the work that we do here is interconnected, right? And so part of the reason I wanted to serve on the State Government and Tribal Relations Committee is not just because all of our voting access bills come through there, but because tribal relations are so critical in everything that we do and so critical in the work that we do on environment as well. Um, Transportation is a fiscal committee, and so, as you know, we are in fiscal cutoff week. So what that means is, you know, bills will start in a policy committee, and they'll be reviewed for their content and their underlying goal. Um, And if it gets voted out of committee uh, with a majority of members, it then goes to a fiscal committee where we evaluate the cost of the bill. Transportation is one of three committees that is a fiscal committee that has a deadline of this Friday to move bills out and into rules committee. So, We've got a really busy agenda uh, through Friday, and we're going to keep working on getting good bills out to rules. That's one reason I'm so grateful that you've given us as much time as you have. Before you go, I want to ask you about a new development here in the House Democratic Caucus, which is the Latino Democratic Caucus. There have been Latino members and Latino members of the caucus for many years, but this is, I believe, a new group that has formed and has a name for itself, and also, I assume, an agenda. Yes. I'm really glad you brought that up because, as you know, Latinos have been a steadily growing population in the state of Washington for a really long time. 
And what's really special is Latino representation in the legislature is also at an all-time high. And so the Democratic members have banded together. Um, We're from different backgrounds, different origins, different ethnicities, just as diverse as the people that live in Washington State. And with 11 of us, we were able to form the Legislative Latino Caucus, as you said. And we um, will have priorities out pretty publicly soon, but we've put our heads together to think about what are the budget items and the policy items that will make the biggest impact for Latinos across the state of Washington and putting those forward to our colleagues and the public. I wish you the best of luck on that. I also wish you the best of luck in getting to your next appointment on time. (laughs) Representative Charlotte Mena, I really do appreciate you coming by Capital Ideas. Uh, This is your first session your first podcast with Capital Ideas, but I know it won't be the last. Thank you for coming by. Thank you so much for having me. That's Representative Charlotte Mena, and that's another Capital Ideas for the audio archives. I suspect you'll agree now with what I said 20 minutes ago that Charlotte is someone you're going to hear from quite a bit in the future. I want to include an important update at this point, which is to say this. When we recorded this podcast, Charlotte's utility cutoff bill was awaiting a vote of the full House. That vote took place on Monday, February 27th, and the bill passed with a better than two-to-one margin. Its fate is now in the Senate's hands, and if you're interested in following that bill, it's House Bill 1329. If you haven't subscribed to Capital Ideas, it's time you did. It's free, of course, and you can subscribe by visiting any of the big-time podcast aggregators or by visiting the House Democratic Caucus website at housedemocrats.wa.gov and poking that media button up at the top of the page. You'll never miss another episode of Capital Ideas, which is good because this is your state government and what happens here matters. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for your time and your attention.